Uh, it's Numbers uh, 25, and tonight I will be reading uh, from, the, uh, from the ESV. So, Numbers 25, and uh, we'll read the, the, read the whole chapter there. So Numbers 25, I'll, as I say, I'll read from the ESV. So it might be slightly different to what's on the screen, but uh, uh, and follow along in your own Bibles, uh, of course. So while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. They, they invited the people to sacrifice of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal at Por. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. And Moses said to the judges of Israel, Each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Baal of Por. And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family, in the sight of Moses, in the sight of all of the congregation of the people of Israel, uh, while they were weeping at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. And he went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. The man of Israel and the woman threw her belly. And thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. And the Lord said to Moses, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, Behold, I have given him a covenant of my peace, and it shall be to him and to his descendants after the covenant the perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. So the name of the slain man of Israel who killed the Midianite was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of the father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midian woman who was killed was Cosby, and the daughter of Zer, who was in the, tri the tribal head of her father's house in Midian. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down. For they harassed you with their wiles, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Por and in the matter of Cosby, uh, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day on the plague at the accounts of Por. So that's our... Our, our reading for tonight, the entire uh, chapter. We come to yet one more of these pivotal points in this book of Numbers. We come to this uh, other point whereby we reach and realise that things are about to change, that things are about to, to happen. And yet, as you will see on screen, is that actually there are times in the Israelites' history where some things never change. And we, as we go throughout this, this story of Israel, as they wander around the desert and as they uh, get themselves into all sorts of trouble. Here are a people group who epitomise the phrase, give somebody enough rope, and eventually they will hang themselves. And that's where we are in our story. So tonight sees us turn the corner into the home straight to the promised land. The, the story of Balaam and Balak is at an end. And we're now introduced to uh, yet a new foreign god, a new foreign deity who will, will play a continuing role in the story of Israel throughout most, if not all, of the whole Testament. You see, that God was the God Baal. And that God would be the God that these people would yoke themselves to, as our passage makes out uh, very clearly. You see, this God Baal was a, a Middle Eastern God. 
a God worshipped for his supposed control over fertility, over rain, over dew. You see, at the time the, the Israelites were around, at the time that our, our, our chapter was written, uh, the, the Israelites, this, this god Baal was worshipped from Syria to Egypt. So it would likely seem at some point that the Israelites would come into somebody or some people group who worshipped this god. You see, the temples of Baal, well, they were something else completely. You talk about disturbed. You talk about broken. You talk about messed up. I'm not going to hold back in what I say now because this is historically a major part of history. This temple of Baal, like we have in the, the Syrian example on screen, was full of, of, of women who would prostitute themselves with the men that supposedly worshipped Baal and that they would have sex with them in order to bring blessing and fertility on their, on their land, on their animals and on their families. That type of verse, this God and his practicers were. That's how far from the truth this uh, nation of God had gone. From the, from the language of the text in verse 1, it seems, however, that the people, the Israelites, have joined in on this practice. The language is very clear. Moses is very direct. There is not any what-ifs or it could have been, they might have, the statement is very clear. The people had begin to and had begin to whore themselves with the people of Moab. We have this pagan nation with a God with evil and who demanded evil and perverse practices. And yet the people of God at this point have decided that that is the acceptable way to live life. You see, it's quite funny, isn't it? Because you could, you could take this scenario, this example, and you could take it to the world and you could ask 200 people around, around us this evening in Torbay, is there a problem with that? And it would be interesting to see the various spectrum of answers you'd get. Well, that's right, it's only sex, it doesn't matter. There would be one type of answer. The other answer, there would be those people that were, were horrified. But you see, when it comes to this understanding, if this is the way to worship a God, it sits in all of us that this is somehow deep-rooted in evil and wrong. Is that correct, or is that just me standing on the moral high ground? Because that's just how it, how it came across to me, that this is so abhorrent that the people of Israel, who are God's chosen nation, as we discussed very briefly this morning, have taken it upon themselves to walk away and to do this. You see, what I also find interesting at the end of the story of Balaam and Balak is that they, they failed in getting God to curse the people. And they tried everything. Uh, they tried spreading discontentment. They damaged relationships. They damaged relationships in family. They spread jealousy, fear, rebellion, disobedience, rivalry, disloyalty, quarreling, and irreverence. Every dirty trick in the book, if you want to put it in that way, to upset the status quo amongst the people of God. You see, at the border of Moab, however, the inevitable happened. Those things that never change happened, and the people eventually fell into sin. You see, the temptation that was one step too far, like it is with so many people, was the allure of sex. That was the thing that pushed the people of Israel over the edge. That was the way 
that, that ultimately the people disobeyed God. You see, what we need to realise from the outset of our passage is this. If the devil fails with one method of distraction or destruction from God, you can be sure, you can put your mortgage on it, your house on it, whatever you hold dear on it, that at some point or another, he will try another way. He will plot and scheme very quickly. You see, Peter reminds us, as we consider Peter this morning, to be sober, to be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. During part one of this chapter of Numbers tonight, it would seem that the devil did not go hungry amongst the, pe of the people of Israel. There was plenty of people to devour from the godless behaviour in Moab. You see, we know that the devil will try different tactics and tricks to deceive us. Remember the trial of Jesus when he was in the wilderness, when he spent 40 days alone being tempted by Satan. Satan told him to turn bread into stones. He said to him, if you're, and that didn't work. He said to him, if you're the son of God, then throw yourself down. And God said he will provide angels to protect you. And that didn't work. And so he tries a final time. And he takes Jesus up to a high mountain and promises him to give all the kingdoms around him everything that his eyes touched if he followed him. And what did Jesus do? Jesus turned around and states to him very plainly and very openly, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus has laid it out straightforwardly and clearly. He has done exactly what the Israelites should have done when they were tempted by the practices of Baal. They should have done what ultimately they knew to be right in their hearts. At the base level, take away any urge, take away any desire, take away anything that's attractive with our eyes. Ultimately, it comes down to doing what the Word of God says. You see, so the last thing we read about uh, the Israelites, before we got to this, this passage, was that they were praising the name of their God for giving them victory over Sion and Og. And here we are again, just a very short space of time down the road, but something never changes. Is that with you? Is that with me? That we get to a point where we say, Lord, I'm really sorry. I've messed up. I've made a mistake. I've got it wrong. I've complete made an utter lash off of it. And then for a day or so, or a week if we're good, or a month if we're brilliant, it goes well. And then come the end of it, eh, well, it all starts to slip back to the way it was before. Why? Because we don't go back to what the Word of God says. We go back to the Word at all times. So, then we come down to this subject that makes us a little bit uncomfortable. Israel has joined itself to those at Belpore, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. You see, the sin doesn't go unnoticed. And Moses is clear in his language that he states that the anger of the Lord, or rather the anger of God, was kindled against the people of Israel. You see, the anger of the Lord isn't a particularly popular subject amongst evangelical Christians like you and I. 
We're, we're happy to focus on God's grace. We're comfortable with focusing on God's mercy. We're ecstatic to focus on the love of God. But his judgment? Oh, well, yeah. We're not sometimes happy with that. That doesn't sit right. I mean, I could be talking about myself, and if I am, then so be it. But when it comes down to the attributes and the character and the nature of God, God is righteous. He is holy. And he will not have sin in his presence. And while I would suggest to you in love that turn or burn isn't necessarily the right way to go about evangelism, what I am saying is this. I believe wholeheartedly that we're going to introduce somebody to God for the first time. Isn't it only fair that we give them the whole picture? We don't just preach the bits of God that we like or preach, preach the bits of God that we think people will like and then leave the rest. We can talk about judgment when you've been a Christian for 10 years and you understand the scriptures a bit more. They need to understand the whole picture. We need to understand the whole picture. You see, God's judgment is right. And he determines what is right or wrong. He sets what is north on the moral compass. You see, he is God. And he is angered by sin. Yet notwithstanding all that, less than five minutes ago, we remember the biggest example of grace and mercy the world has ever seen. So we do worship a God who is merciful. We do worship a God who is gracious. We do serve a God who is loving. But let's not get hung up on those things. And we have to realize that God is righteous. God is holy. And we approach a holy and righteous God. How? By the blood of of Jesus. Let's get that absolutely clear. God is holy. God is righteous. And there will be times when the anger of the Lord will be kindled against not only Israel, but us as individuals. So in verses 6 to 14, we have the example of, of a brazen sin. The people Israel, the whole nation, they're showing signs of repentance. They have seen what God has done, what they have done has grieved God. And they gather around the tent of meeting. And while this is happening, this man Zimri has brought a Moabite girl to his family, to his home. He wants to continue the, the ungodly practices in the temple. For him, the allure of sin is just too strong. Let's not be quick to judge, however. The allure of sin can happen to any of us at any time. You see, the judgment of God is dealt out on the people of Israel because of one man's actions. Verse 9 talks about a plague. And we are told about 24,000 people die during said plague. You see, the actions of God, or the, rather the actions of the people, has caused God to act in judgment. The sin of the people has caused a righteous God to take righteous actions. You see, we must be aware that while we are sinners saved by grace, we need to be aware that our sin will have consequences. We are saved eternally. Underline, full stop, not for negotiation. 
but our actions will have reactions. And there are times when our sin will catch us out. Be prepared. We're warned from the word of God. If we sin openly, there may come a time where God will deal with our sin openly. We've been warned from Scripture. You see, the last eight verses of this chapter, uh, the, the, the chapter, as we said, that just like this morning, is a, is a pivotal moment in the book, shows the arrival of a man who stands out against the backdrop of sin. He's the, the polar opposite of the first character we are introduced to. He's a man called Phineas. You see, if the people have sinned, but amongst the sin of the people, God raised up a righteous man who would make a difference and act on God's behalf. And here we have the Old Testament. Here we have a picture of Christ. Here we have a man who was willing to stand up against sin and do something about it. You see, Phineas, as a man, you see, here is a man who is obedient to God's word. Phineas knew what the word of God said. He was a relation to Aaron, who was a priest. He was a man who was willing to be obedient to the word of God, even though it made him unpopular. And no matter how unpopular the world would see him, no matter how unpopular the word of God would make him, he was willing to be obedient to the word of God. You see, that, that is the first of three simple challenges I want to leave us with as we go into this week. We are God's people. And if so, we need to be a people who are obedient to God's word, even though it might make us unpopular. You see, Phineas was unpopular, but his actions stopped the plague. His adherence to the word of God changed the outlook for so many people. It was one man who was willing to stand up and be obedient to the word of God. You see, not only was Phineas obedient to the word of God, he was obedient in his zeal for God's honour. His intervention saved the lives of thousands. It wasn't just the commandment that had been broken, it was the honour of the Lord. It was the honour of God. Imagine this whole scenario we've talked about. We see all this sin, we saw all this debauchery, we saw all this prostitution, we see everything around it. Imagine if God did nothing. Imagine if God just said, ah, don't worry about it. He just turned a blind eye to it. What would that say to the Moabites? What would they think of the Israelite God? He's irrelevant. He doesn't exist. It's all a fairy story for people afraid of the dark, to quote Richard Dawkins. What does it mean? If the sin went unpunished, the people could behave as corruptly and inappropriately as they liked. And they wouldn't have had any consequence whatsoever. You see, God had to step in. God had to intervene. And he used Phineas, a man who was zealous for God's honour. You see, as Christians here, we are watched by people around us. 
we are supposed to have high standards of morality. In the world's eyes, we are supposed to do nothing wrong. We are God's representatives on earth. And as we spoke about ambassadors this morning, we should behave like it. Why? Because we are there. We have the potential to be the Phineas's of our day. We are the people who should be standing out as obedient to the word of God. Who are zealous for God's honour. You see, the honour of God's name should be a priority for those of us that live in today's society as a Christian. We live in a, in a society that has little time for spiritual values and even less time for moral values. So if we're going to stand out for God and be zealous for his honour, then we should be a people who stand out in the way that we live life and the way that we behave. You see, there is an expectation from God that we behave in uncompromising ways that brings honour to his name. That's easy, isn't it? No bother at all. We'd all do that. That is one of the hardest things the Lord can ask of us. Us with our inherent sin and our inherent willingness to drop the ball and mess things up at a moment's notice. Yet the Lord calls us to be obedient to his word, to be zealous for his honour. You see, Phineas was a man who was committed to God's service. When the people had wandered far from God, it was one of their leaders who would bring them back into line. So we've just come through the turmoil of Brexit and a million parliamentary votes and everything else. How amazing would it be for us as a nation to know that when we'd messed this up, we'd made a complete hash of things, that we had a leader who was godly to bring us back into line. Wouldn't that be incredible? Right? Wouldn't that be a thing to reason to praise God for? Well, here we have that exact example in Phineas, in the nation of Israel. Phineas was a leader of the people. He was a son of Aaron, and he had an expectation to lead in a godly way. But, they, but leaders need support. Leaders need people behind them. Let me ask you a hard question. When was the last time you prayed for the leaders of this country? The leaders of this church? The leaders of our nations? The leaders internationally? We are called to. We are told to. Yet when was the last time you actually properly prayed for the leaders of our nation, the leaders of our churches, and the leaders of our world. Listen, we are instructed to pray for these people, whether you agree with them, disagree with them, you follow their political ideologies, or you don't. We are called to pray for them. Do you know one of the most powerful things I ever heard? I was sat in the front room of a head teacher in Uganda. And as I was sitting there looking at these, the pictures around the room, there was a, a very, they are fiercely patriotic. And so you imagine my surprise when I see a picture of all the various leaders of Uganda over the years. And right smack bang in the middle of them is Idi Amin. Here was a man who caused utter chaos in that nation. And I said to the, I said to the, the guy that was my host, I said, why are those pictures up on the wall? He said, well, we're a nation who are really proud of our leaders. 
I thought, oh, we're going to have some fun in the next conversation if this carries on. And he said, no, no, no. He said, let me get this straight. He said, I'm a Christian. The Bible tells me to pray for my leaders, whether I like them or whether I don't. Here was a man who was alive at the time that Idi Amin was out causing chaos in Uganda and the surrounding countries, where murder was rife, where crime was rife at the hands of their leaders. And here was a man who stood there and pointed them out as a man that he prayed for. It's one of these things that sticks with you in life. It's one of those lessons that you learn. You want to pray for somebody? You want to pray for somebody in hardship? Think of that man in Uganda and pray for our leaders and pray for our nation. You see, let's remember, no matter how depraved society gets, no matter how degraded our moral environment gets, God will always have his people who are determined to walk with God in uprightness and to do their bit to turn people away from sin. So I leave you tonight with a quote from the Bible that speaks today. Phineas represented a new generation, a people ready to commit themselves to the Lord, his worship and his word. The question is, as we go into this week, are you and I one of those people? Are we a people who are ready to be obedient, to be zealous, and to be committed to the Lord in his service as we go into another week, whatever that week may bring? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the challenge of your word uh, this evening. Lord, we see how your people, your nation of Israel, they would turn their back against you in, in abhorrent ways. And yet, Father, from that nation, you raised up people. You raised up men and women of God who would stand and be counted. And that, Father, they would act out your judgment in Phineas's case very literally. But, Father, I'm sure Phineas wasn't alone in that he would be a a people, he would be part of a people group who would stand up and point the way back to God. Father, tonight I pray that we would be a people group who stand up and point people back to God. Father, we see the practices our nation commits. We see the, the sin that is rife, the sin is that is so readily accepted. Father, you haven't changed. You are still a God who is holy and who is righteous. And Lord, we would ask and pray that we would be a people who would be obedient to your word. That Lord, we would be zealous for your honour. And Lord, that we would be committed to your service in whatever that may be as we go into this week. Father, thank you for the challenge of your word. We ask your blessing on it in Jesus' name. Amen.